Good afternoon. Welcome to another edition, a special edition of VP Live Talk Radio. What we're going to be doing this afternoon is we're going to have Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. He'll be taking questions. If you'd like to call in your questions, the call in number is 347 308-8329. If you're not able to call in, if you are in the chat room, you can just click on the VP Live network. I am in the chat and you can uh, private message me your question or comment and I will read them to Dr. Siegel. So it's really great that he is going to be doing this. Let me get everything situated here. Okay. I think I am ready. So what we're going to do is we're going to Call up Dr. Siegel and get him on and get this going. Here we go. I haven't had Dr. Siegel on in years. It's been years. A very, very long time. So remember, 347-308-329. Dr. Siegel, how are you, sir? Good, good. It is very nice to have you on. It's been a lot it's been years since we've had you on. And a lot has happened. <laughs> I mean, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It is unbelievable. So again, 347-308-329 if you want to call in with questions or comments for Dr. Siegel. Uh, you can also send them in the uh, chat room, the VP Live Network icon, and you can text them to me and I will read them to Dr. Siegel. I want to thank you for coming on and doing this. The deeming regulations have come down. We've waited a very long time. They are here. Before we get to that, Dr. Siegel, I don't know if you had... Uh, heard this, but yesterday on a Texas uh, talk radio show, there was a woman by the name of Jerry Voss, and she is a spokesperson for FDA Tobacco. And I saw this on Twitter. She actually, someone said, did she just say that e-cigarettes kill people? And uh, have you heard this? I did. I heard her comment, uh, and she clearly was stating that that e-cigarettes are killing people and that that's why the FDA had was justified in taking action. Yeah, for those of you that didn't hear it, I'll play real quick. Here's the clip where she says it. Scientific data, they're saying that this is so onerous that this is going to drive them out of the business. It's important to remember that we're talking about products that kill people. These are products that contain nicotine that is highly addictive, whether it comes from an e-cigarette, hookah, cigarette, cigar. That is absolutely amazing. How can they say that? <laughs> well, they 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 basically are lying. Um, they are in a. I, I think that they're boxed into a corner where they're having a difficult. These regulations make no sense whatsoever from a public health perspective, and I think deep down that they realize it. And so the only way they're able to justify it when they're pressed on it is essentially to resort to lying. And, you know, she was under the gun there at being asked a very tough question and basically had to admit that, you know, the only way we can justify this is by lying about it because it makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, but can they lie like that? She can just go on a, a national radio show like that and just lie? And that that's, I mean, she, she can do this, like legally do this. There's no legal recourse anybody can take. She can just lie? There's no, there's absolutely, absolutely no legal recourse uh, that you can take for for uh, a government agency lying. Unfortunately, wow. Um, the yeah, I mean, there the only legal recourse at this point is uh, litigation against the agency itself, but that would be based on uh, the regulations themselves, not on statements that the FDA made. Right, right. 
Unbelievable. So for those of you that aren't aware, because I know we have a lot of people that have been using e-cigarettes just in the past few years, uh, Dr. Michael Siegel has been championing for us for years. He has a blog called The Rest of the Story, Tobacco News Analysis and Commentary. I'll put the link to the blog in the replay notes. Uh, it is a phenomenal blog. He is just following the unbelievable things that are going on with the anti-tobacco groups uh, now with what's going on with the FDA and, and these uh, unbelievable crushing regulations. You know, I knew they were going to be bad, Dr. Siegel. I have to be honest. I knew they were going to be bad, but I didn't think they were going to be this bad. You know, Gr Greg said uh, he was on CNN the other day, and, and this is what he said. The problem is, is that the FDA is regulating with a sledgehammer instead of with a scalpel. Yeah, it, it, it was a sledge. It seems like they just went all out. And some people are speculating that they did this because they know they're going to be sued or whatever. So they, I, it, it's just unbelievable how harsh the regulations are. And uh, Mitch Zeller today, during that press conference they did, when they, he was asked about the uh, date, not changing the uh, February two th 2007 date, said that... Uh, uh, well, there was really no comments to really justify doing that. Is he crazy? <laughs> I mean, how can he say that? <laughs> well, you know, the the <clears throat> I think that the FDA, uh, Mitch Zeller, believes that the statute really uh, tied their hands in which in in what they could do here. Um, and I don't actually agree with that. I mean, I've, I'm familiar with the statute, and I don't think there's anything in the statute that uh, makes makes it improper for the FDA to carve out different regulatory frameworks for different products. I don't see anything in the regulation that says if you deem a product to be subject to this regulation, it has to be exactly the same as every other product. In fact, in the statute itself, there are different requirements for different tobacco products. So cigarettes are regulated somewhat differently than smokeless tobacco products. Um, so I don't I don't agree with that. But nevertheless. You know, the point is that that's what the agency interpreted. And unless the statute is changed by Congress, then, you know, this is clearly the approach that the FDA has chosen to take. And so we're, we're kind of stuck with it for now unless Congress intervenes. Well, what, what he said, too, that was interesting was he said that, you know, years ago the industry sued. And uh, when they sued, a judge determined that they are now tobacco products. So were to blame for it being a tobacco product. That's what he said today. <laughs> he said the cigarette <laughs> industry is to blame. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, it, it's not a question of who's to blame in the, in the sense that, um, you know, these are the FDA who promulgated, the, the FDA promulgated the regulations. So they can't throw off the blame on anybody else. Um, you know, they're making it sound like they had no choice whatsoever and that they were, they were reluctant to do this. Um, they weren't reluctant to do this. They readily admit, as we just heard that clip earlier, that um, they're justifying this on the grounds that, you know, we've got a product that's killing people and that they have to step in and, and, and take action. Um, the regulations talk about the youth, skyrocketing youth use of e-cigarettes. They talk about the fact that it's not clear whether they're any safer. It talks about the addiction and how uh, it may be harming adolescents' brains. So I mean, it's very clear that the FDA is basically um, buying on to, latching on to the hysterical uh, uh, and deceptive uh, information that has been disseminated by the anti-tobacco groups and essentially using that as a justification for um, 
using this sledgehammer approach. And I, that's a great analogy because this is regulatory overkill at its worst. I mean, it is the, the details and the level of specificity that they are uh, requiring from companies to comply with these new product applications is unbelievable. I mean, this will be the most regulated pro- consumer product on the entire market um, with the most extreme details that, that must be provided to the, to the agency, uh, which of course makes no sense because these products are not killing anyone. It's the smoking, it's the real cigarettes that are killing people, and those have been given a completely free ride. They don't have to submit pre-approval applications. They don't have to uh, test, do testing uh, of their products. Uh, they don't have to justify why their products should be allowed on the market uh, in terms of the public health. So it, it makes no sense to to regulate e-cigarettes, a much safer product, very stringently, uh, but to give cigarettes a completely free ride. Right. And I, and I do want to get into what the application entails because I don't think a lot of businesses understand that. But uh, before I get to that, we do have a question from the chat. It's from Dane. Uh, he wants to know if you have any insight on what the FDA is going to do for enforcement of the deeming regs and resources they would employ to enforce them. Well, I think that the uh, – I don't know. I don't know exactly what their enforcement plans are. Um, the Typically what the FDA does with enforcement is they try to – essentially set an example so they try to they'll you know they'll pick on one or two companies uh to enforce the regulations to kind of set an example to try to scare everyone else off um and uh, you know that's what they did initially when they seized electronic cigarette shipments uh back in 2009 uh which actually led to the uh to the the to the lawsuit uh, so they basically just chose two companies and then seized their products as an example to everyone. That's typically the way that the uh, agency enforces these laws um, because if they can't knock on everyone's door. They just don't have the resources to, to do that. Um, what I would say, however, is that it's going to be a lot easier for them to enforce this law because the requirements of the these pre-market approval applications are so complex and so detailed that it's going to be very, very easy for the, for the FDA to just basically reject them all out of hand. Right. And it's, it's not, you know, from, from a uh, perspective of resources, it's not going to take a lot of time, I don't think, for the agency to enforce it because, you know, they're essentially able to just turn down all these applications very quickly. Well, yeah, and, you know, they had mentioned that they didn't mention anything about flavors, banning flavors. Uh, they really don't need to because all they have to do is when they get an application and it's an e-liquid that's a flavor, they can just turn it down, reject it. They don't really have to ban flavors. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so what they, what this is basically doing is it's a de facto ban. It's, it's not regulation. It's prohibition. Uh, it's just prohibition disguised as regulation. Uh, what this really does is it bans 99% of the products that are on the market. The only companies that will be able to survive are the largest of the uh, companies, and that would include the tobacco companies uh, and their products and possibly a few of the large independent manufacturers. But for the most part, 
medium and small businesses are not going to be able to comply with this. And just because it's prohibitively expensive, what they're being asked to do uh, by the agency is just incredibly expensive, and they, they can't afford it. It's not a capital cost that most small or medium businesses can afford. Right. Uh, 347-308-8329. Press the number one to be put on hold. If you have a question for Dr. Siegel, we're going to go to area code 814. You are on the air. Hello. Hello. How are you today, Kevin? I am fine. How are you? I am good. Hello, Dr. Siegel. I have a, I have a question for you. Do you think that the MSA had anything to do with the way this regulation was written? And I mean that as, do you think that they learned their lesson um, with the MSA? The MSA is, was written and is now protecting big tobacco um, because of the way it was structured. Do you, do you think that part of the reason that we have this sledgehammer of 499 pages was so that they could put out regulation and not have egg on their face this time? I think that there's no question that part of the impetus behind this is the public perception and the pressure that's being put on the agency by all of these public health groups. And one thing that's very different here than in the UK, where they have much more sensible regulation, is that in the UK there were health groups that actually supported the idea of e-cigarettes and supported the concept of harm reduction here in the U.S., there are literally none of the mainstream uh, anti-tobacco organizations and health groups that supported harm reduction. So I think you're right that, in, in a sense, um, the FDA has to please these anti-smoking groups which have, who have a lot of political uh, clout. And I think that they certainly, you know, bent over backwards to try to do what they could to appease those groups. And I think that was a huge influence on the process. Okay. And do you think that our fight should turn towards being classified as a modified risk product? I mean, I hate the fact that we are being defined as a tobacco product because I personally do not feel that we are a tobacco product. I mean, you're right. It is not a tobacco product. Uh, There's no tobacco in it, so it's it's not a tobacco product. I, I think that what we ought to be pushing for is a separate regulatory framework that is separate from tobacco products. It makes no sense to consider e-cigarettes as a tobacco product, and it makes no sense to regulate it as a tobacco product. I think it should be regulated in its own category. So there should be a, a set of standards for regulating vaping products, and they should have their own regulatory scheme. I do think there should be regulation because we need to have, consumers need to have confidence that the products that they're buying meet certain uniform safety standards, and we don't want exploding batteries, and we don't want contaminated e-liquids, and so forth. But I think that the regulation should be focused on setting minimum uh, safety and quality control standards for these products, not on requiring these expensive pre-market approvals that result in um, taking most of these products off the market. Okay. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate your time. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you for your call, Jeannie. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, and you know, I'm also surprised as well, uh, Dr. Siegel, that 
They didn't seem to really take the Royal College of Physicians reports uh, into consideration at all. At all. It's a, a, that, that, that amazes me that they're not, you know, we, back, for people to understand, back in the early 60s, the Royal College of Physicians came out with a report linking cigarette use to lung cancer. And it took the United States, I don't know, a couple years to realize this before our Surgeon General actually started do, you know, start doing something about this. Now we have this report all these years later that are coming out praising e-cigarettes, saying that doctors should be recommending them, saying that uh, uh, states should not be taxing the, the, the living hell out of them and, and make them affordable. So, you know, th- they're a great tool to get off cigarettes. And it's just like they just ignored that. They could care less. Why is that? Do they not they, take value in the Royal College of Physicians at all? I mean, why is that? It's difficult to understand their, their thinking here uh, because they not only ignored the Royal College of uh, Physicians report, but they ignored the bulk of the scientific literature that's out there. And the, uh, the agency actually stated that they don't have evidence right now that e-cigarettes help anyone to quit smoking. Uh, which is absurd because everyone who's listening knows that there are, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who've actually been successful in uh, quitting smoking using these products. So it's a ridiculous statement for them to make. And I think what's really behind this, at least to some extent, is the fact that the FDA was just not designed as an agency um, to regulate consumer products. They were... uh, Regulate, they were designed specifically to regulate drugs, pharmaceuticals. And so their standard is always making sure that drugs are safe, absolutely safe. So any side effects, any adverse effects have to be um, looked at very carefully and sometimes can be enough to keep a product off the market or at very least they would have to have a black box warning uh, to consumers. So I think that they're... They're not used to the idea of looking at harm reduction. They're not used to looking at the idea of uh, an alternative product to a product that's killing people, that literally is killing people. And they're essentially evaluating the evidence regarding e-cigarettes with the same framework that they use for drugs. And it's just not an appropriate framework to be using. Um, It's essentially they're, they're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole it doesn't fit. It doesn't work. And I think that's what's causing this whole problem. Right, right. Uh, anybody who uh, wants to speak with Dr. Siegel, just press 1. I see there's a bunch of calls. If you press the number 1, I know you're on hold to uh, speak with him. You know, it's interesting, too. Last year, I had saw a piece on Al Jazeera TV about Chantix. And the unbelievable, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people committing suicide because of this drug. Um, they're not doing anything about it. They're doing nothing I mean, that amazes me. How how can they keep that drug on the market? I mean, how, how many people have to die before they say, okay, maybe we need to do something? I mean, how is that possible? Well, that's the irony of the situation is that here you have a drug that is known to be associated with severe uh, fatal uh, side effect, adverse effects, uh, and, they not, and they didn't do anything about it. Yet with e-cigarettes, which so far as we know, uh, don't have any adverse effects uh, that are significant, uh, and the agency is absolutely regulating them into non-existence. Um, so it's, it is it is quite an irony, and I think again I think they're they're applying uh, the the wrong model to this. 
they don't really have a sense, I think, of the idea of harm reduction. Um, they're going for absolute safety, and that makes no sense when the alternative is smoking a pro- is smoking a product that is killing 400,000 people a year. You don't go for perfection. You know, we don't need a product that is absolutely safe. We need something that is much safer than than uh, tobacco cigarettes, and we've got that. Um, so, I think that they're going about this, you know, in, entirely the wrong way, and uh, it do, it just doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't at all. Uh, we have a call. I know who this is. This is Mr. Jeff Steyer. How are you, sir? You're on the air. It is. Hi, great to be with you. Hi, Mike. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Good, thank you. I joined the call a moment ago, but I, I can already say I agree with everything that Mike has said up until this point because I've read everything he's done, and he makes a huge contribution uh, to our work. This morning, uh, I I had an opportunity to hear Mitch Deller from the Center for Tobacco Products at the FDA speak uh, here at the TMA conference, and he came obviously under a lot of, first of all, I give him a lot of credit for coming uh, and speaking with us, uh, but the bottom line is, when challenged about the out, what everything that Mike just said, uh, he said, look, it was a balancing act. And he kept repeating this phrase, it was a balancing act. On the one hand, there are valid points that I'm hearing in the room. There was criticism of uh, taking someone who vaped once in 30 days and calling them a vapor and now a nicotine addict. He agreed that maybe there are problems with that. But he said, on the other hand, the rule that the FDA announced on Thursday and published today is a balancing act between what I'm hearing here and versus what I'm hearing from uh, what he called very loud critics on the other side, like the campaign for tobacco-free kids. I think it's interesting he called them loud. Um, maybe we weren't on our side uh, uh, exercising a loud enough voice. Maybe we weren't engaged enough in the process. And he talked about, uh, for instance, why he didn't change the predicate date. He said he didn't think that uh, it was his right to do, but he also, because the Congress didn't give him Uh, give them authority to do that. Well, Congress can change that, but the people need to speak to their members of Congress. He also said many times that they reviewed all the comments as they're required to do by law, and he didn't see a justification for doing something differently. Well, he didn't Uh, see a justification for... I don't don't know that it's correct, but I'm just relaying it. Uh, So don't kill the messenger. The messenger that... The message that I heard from Mitch Seller this morning was we didn't get comments that persuaded us, and the other side has been louder. Well, he did, he said he didn't get comments that persuaded him, persuaded them to change the date. I don't believe that for a second. Correct. I mean, I, I just don't believe it. Um, like I said, I'm not here to defend what he said. I'm here to, I, and I live tweeted it, as you, as you know, uh, at Jeff A. Steyer. I, I live tweeted, uh, I apologize for the typos because it was coming fast and furious, uh, but you'll see it in the context on, on Twitter. You know, I... Uh... Do, 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 I mean, I obviously they claim they read all the comments. I mean, Dr. Siegel, do you think that there's just so much pressure from the anti-tobacco groups? They they were and, you know not not just them, congressmen like Senator Blumenthal and others. You think that they just caved into that pressure? They pretty much just ignored what we as vapors and industry had to say and just said, okay, we've got so much noise coming from them, we have to please them. Well, you know, I think that there is a um we have to remember that, you know, basically all of the folks who are at the Center for Tobacco Products are basically coming out of the anti-tobacco field. Um, you know, Mitch has been involved in these issues for many, many years. 
Um, and he, he's coming out of the anti-tobacco movement, really. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be the case that those are the voices that are going to be listened to the most. And um, frankly, the political pressure that those organizations are, are able to, to put on, on the FDA and on Congress is, is, is very large. Um, so I know that, that Mitch felt like he was kind of between a rock and a hard place. He was being pushed on both sides. Um, and I understand that. What I don't agree with, though, is that this strikes a balance. I mean, to me, this is totally on one side. It, it is, I don't see any balance there. I don't see anything um, you know, that, that incorporates the concerns that the vaping industry um, and consumers uh, put into the, to the agency. And one thing I want to mention that Jeff actually uh, tweeted out this morning, which I took to heart, um, is that what I don't think a lot of people realize is I believe that the FDA has created an imminent safety hazard, literally an, an imminent threat to public safety, because what they're doing is literally freezing the market on August 8th. So basically, whatever products are on the market on August 8th, it's basically like taking a snapshot and then freezing the market. And what that means is that if there are defective batteries on the market, which there will be on August 8th, that the FDA is freezing those. They're actually institutionalizing them into the market. And if a company were to want to, uh, if a pump company got a complaint that its batteries were exploding and it wanted to substitute in a new type of battery, they actually can't do that because that would be considered a new tobacco product and would require FDA approval. Um, and that might be an extreme example, but even you know more uh, minor changes like uh, if a company found out that certain voltage settings would be more appropriate because they would have less of a chance of uh, getting formaldehyde in the in the uh, aerosol, or you know any other safety improvements. Essentially, companies are not allowed to make those safety improvements. Um, yep. So this raises some severe, I think, public health hazards, actually. I've never heard of a health agency that has actually uh, put into the law that companies cannot make safety improvements on their products. I've never heard of a health agency that regulates batteries. <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. Uh, and, you know, Jeff, did he mention at all this morning that did anybody ask him about because the predicate date is, has not been changed about stifling innovation? Did he address that at all? Uh, yeah, and uh, the point we just discussed and that Mike zeroed in on was a point made by, and now I, I tweeted it, but it was a point made by Lou Ritter from ERF, so he should get credit for that. Uh, but he was also asked about innovation, and his response, once again, throughout the, throughout the morning, uh, was that he understands the arguments that are being made, but there, there is a balancing act. But the one other thing he added, and again, not to uh, take his position or agree with his position, but just to share it with fellow advocates, his, his position on things, uh, the question that Mike asked, why, you know, why are they ban essentially banning a product going forward that's less harmful? What Mitch Ziller would say to that, based on how what I understood him to say today as well as in his uh, media call on Thursday, was that, no, we're not banning these products. We're actually offering uh, 
a pre-market approval process and the science, uh, uh, it's hard for me to say this with a straight face, but he says the science will dictate how that process goes forward and so there's a procedure and we've worked in what he called efficiencies in the procedure to have a, a mat, what he calls a master binder like they use in the medical device area. So if somebody upstream produces a nicotine liquid and one of their customers buy it and then they have the customer has to uh, do their own uh, PMTA, they can draw from that master file if the, uh, if the original uh, upstream company gives permission to streamline the process. And this is obviously all proprietary information that would be in that master file, so they right. have the, the, the upstream company would have to give permission. Uh, but what Mitch Zeller would say is it's not as expensive as Mike Siegel says it is. It's not a ban like Jeff Steyer says it is. And there's a process that companies can go through to use science, so it's not a wild west. And we've offered that uh, procedure, and we've uh, we're, we're, he repeated that he's open to communications from the regulated industry, and he encourages those communications to take place earlier in the process than they did on things like substantial equivalence. Uh, that they've learned from the substantial equivalence process, and uh, want to incentivize industry to come forward sooner to put in the applications earlier and in consultation even before they apply. Uh, with the FDA to see whether the application is on track. I don't agree with any of that, but that's what he said. Well, Dr. Siegel beautifully broke down on his blog how expensive it would be, and we're going to get to that, but we got a couple calls. Uh, area code 408, you are on the air with Dr. Siegel and Jeff Steyer. Hi, uh, my name is Ed Wolf. Uh, I have a question, actually more of an assertion, is that when I read all of the documents, uh, I do not see how they are even saying or trying to say that they control any items that do not have nicotine. So items like mods, uh, batteries, um, and the atomizers uh, are outside of the domain of the FDA, and the documents reflect that. So I'm not sure. Um, I think it's a major problem because there's a lot of confusion out there. So um, can either of them speak to that? Well, let me, I'll respond first, and then Jeff can, can correct me uh, if, I, if I'm wrong here, um, because it is very confusing and difficult to interpret. But my interpretation of the regulations is that accessory, uh, sorry, not accessories, uh, components or parts of the devices are considered to be tobacco products. So if you are producing a, a vaping device, every part of that, the, the battery, the coil, um, the liquids that go into it, the charging systems, uh, if there's an electronic display, all of that is part of the tobacco product. And so if you are selling that as a finished product, meaning you're, you're selling it uh, for sale to the consumer without modification, then you are a manufacturer and you have to uh, justify the safety of all of those components uh, as a whole. You have to show that that product as a whole will be beneficial for the public's health. And that means you have to take into account um, the safety of the battery, the uh, features of the coil, um, the charging system, overcharge protection, and things like that. You have to, you have to show that the device as a whole um, will, be, will be beneficial to the public's health. Um, if you are selling a component just on its own, and it's for uh, the intention is that it would be used by the by, by a, a manufacturer to then assemble 
the unit, then you don't have to do that because it's not a finished tobacco product. So that's that's my understanding. But um, you know, clearly it's very burdensome because it's just more. It's a lot more complicated than just you know doing a chemical test on the aerosol. There's a lot more to it. And what it seems yeah, like I, to be um, just to. I, I, Go ahead. Just to clarify on something Mike said, because he was correct, that if it's going to be modified by a manufacturer, but um, when I think when Mike said manufacturer, he, he means manufacturer as defined by the statute, which could even be a vape shop if they if they are mixing liquids. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I agree. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with all of that. However, what you guys are both missing is that it has to be a finished tobacco product. And it is not a tobacco product if it does not contain nicotine from tobacco. So if a company, say Proveri, sells a mod, uh, that is not a tobacco product. Neither is a battery. Neither is an atomizer. All of those independently sold nicotine. And there's a lot of confusion that's being pushed out uh, because people are not picking up on the points that the FDA is making about a finished tobacco product. But what but what it'll come down to, Ed, is that. Okay, let's say Proveri wants to send their product in for approval, sends in a pre-market tobacco application. It's not going to get approved. They're not going to be able to sell it. They don't need to. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying something Well, they need different. to because it's I'm used. They, do not need to, they don't need to do that because they are not a tobacco product. And the FDA says quite clearly that if they are aware of no items that do, that do not contain nicotine that are tobacco products. People are missing the point of a finished tobacco product and it's causing a tremendous amount of confusion as it's propagated out there. So my, my let me just say, you know, I, I acknowledge that the, these are very complex rules and, it, and it, the FDA didn't explain it very well, but I have a different interpretation of the regulations. Um, the way I read the regulations, if a product is intended to be used with a nicotine-containing product, or if it is reasonably known that consumers are using it with a nicotine product, then it is subject to regulation. That's right. So if so, if yeah. you were and manufacturing, I'll, a, I'll just agree uh, with my, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. I'll just agree with Mike on that because this morning Mitch Seller uh, discussed some of that, and again I'll refer you to my tweets. Uh, from Jeff A. Steyer, S-T-I-E-R, because I was pretty much live-tweeting it, and I, I don't necessarily remember every detail about that, but I, he made an analogy, and you'll see it in my tweets, uh, that if it's intended for use with a nicotine product, then it's a, a tobacco product. Um, but if it is... Uh, he, he made some reference to a cigarette lighter, that a lighter would not be considered a tobacco product, but something that's used as a component of an e-cigarette, even though there's no tobacco in or nicotine in that component, if it is then intended for use with a nicotine product, then it is a tobacco product. Correct. That is correct. Okay, we're going to take another call. Area code 314. You are on the air with Dr. Siegel and Jeff Steyer. Hello, 314. Yeah, you just brought up the point about the 0% nicotine. Everybody's saying that 0% nicotine is not going to be regulated, is not considered a regulation. But what, what, they're contradicting themselves on that? What did they say, Lynn? It, it, it's a 
covered under intended it's covered use. Under intended use. It's also been shown that zero nicotine does, in fact, uh, have traces of It's nicotine. also shown that zero percent nicotine does show traces okay. of nicotine. And it does have a clause in there that if you submit the paperwork, yeah. you possibly could be exempted. What's your thoughts on that? So if you if you are not using nicotine in an e-liquid, if there is no nicotine in there, um, then it's not going to be defined as a tobacco product. And so what you have to do, according to the regulations, is a process which is called self-certification, which essentially means that you have to send a certification document to the FDA, basically documenting that, no, this e-liquid does not have any nicotine in it, and they also ask you to, to, to verify that. So presumably that means that you would have to do chemical testing and you would have to okay. submit the results of your chemical yeah. testing showing that there's no nicotine in there. Uh, and if you do that, then it's not going to be considered a tobacco product. But until then, you are. That's the whole point we're trying to get across. Until then, until you submit all that, until they do, give you the proper green light, you are considered, 0% e-liquid is considered a tobacco product. Agree or disagree? No, I agree. I agree. I think the burden, they've put the burden of proof on the manufacturer to show that there's no nicotine in there um, because they have made a point about how they tested many e-liquids that claim to have zero nicotine in them, and then when they tested them, they actually did have some nicotine in them. So the burden is on the manufacturer to demonstrate that their product um, doesn't have nicotine in it if it's if it is a zero nicotine product. Uh, but remember that you don't have those products don't have to come off the market. Uh, basically, they have two years uh, before they have to file these pre market applications. Uh, so presumably, at some point during that two year period, uh, manufacturers who produce zero nicotine liquids. Uh, could get that self put that self certification in and submit testing showing there's no nicotine in those and then those products would not be regulated. Okay, the other thing is in the meantime, should we put the warning label on zero percent nicotine? Until we're approved. Until we're approved. That's that's the big million dollar question. So on that one, I'm going to defer to Jeff. <laughs> well, Jeff's a- Jeff's actually not on the line. The uh, the oh, uh, Jeff's not. Uh, oh, yeah, okay. I don't know. Somehow his number disconnected. Oh. I, if he wants to call back in, he can certainly call back in. But uh, I guess that okay. is yeah. I, I'm not sure, honestly. If it, there's no nick in it, so why would you have to put a warning saying there's nicotine in it? That yeah. Because I would, according, you know, to them, according to them, it has nicotine in it until you are authorized and you get the green light that it does not have nicotine in it because of their past findings that they did find nicotine in 0% nicotine. You're, no, you're exactly right. Exactly right. They've put the burden on the manufacturer to, to demonstrate that. So until such time as you demonstrate that, um, it would be considered a a tobacco product and would be subject to the warning label requirements. Um, the, the, you know, the, I, I guess the only thing I can say is there is a, a grace period um, for submitting new product applications, and there's also a, a time uh, uh, about 12 months before the warning labels come into are going to be where they're going to enforce the warning label. So you have, presumably, you have some time to get that self-certification. 
But that's just so crazy that they would have. Retail stores are on the are on the on the front line, so that's going to be the places that they're going to come hit. You know, so we need to be the ones that comply. You know, what I'm saying as best that we can. I mean, I, I I don't want nobody to get the wrong information. We all know it's still new. We still got a long ways to go on this before everybody makes public statements. But then there's statements being made that zero percent nicotine is not under there, and you don't have to worry about your zero percent nicotine. And that's not true. Well, no. From from what, no, what from understanding, you would have to until you send for approval. Yes, you'd have to put a warning label on zero percent nicotine e-liquid, stating that it contains nicotine. <laughs> that's crazy. That's, that <laughs> it so is sorry. crazy, but that's but yeah. that's exactly what they're what they're saying. That's what we're trying to get across to people. You know, there's a lot yeah. of people relying on people and. We just need to make sure we cover ourselves because we're the ones on ATS already been in our stores two different times in the past year and a half. They they've are they're already ready. They've already been compiling their little data of stores they're gonna hit. The ATF was actually in our stores, flashed his badge a year and a half ago, and then another six months ago he's in our store in another store of ours. So, you know, we know what's coming. We know they're ready. They just, but they're going to come and check them labels. You know, they're they're yep. putting all kinds of different stuff in there to try to throw us off, so maybe they can catch us slipping. In my opinion, possibly. Well, you know, I I I agree with you. I think they're doing everything they can to make it as difficult as possible for small businesses to survive. And uh, it's sad because there's no public health benefit that's coming from this. You know, if there were actually people dying from this, as the FDA claimed on the radio show, then I could understand, uh, you know, that you're getting some benefit for the burden that you're imposing on businesses. But here, you're imposing a huge burden on businesses, but it's for for what end? There's no positive uh, result that's coming from this. Uh, And that, to me, is what is the shame of the whole thing. Right. I agree. Well, thank you for your call. Thank you. We appreciate y'all's time. No problem. Okay, if you have any questions for Dr. Siegel, 347-308-8329. You can press the number 1 and you'll be put on hold. Or if you're in the chat, you can click on the VP Live. Uh, I'm in the chat, and you can send a private message with your question or comment. Now, there's something I want to discuss. The other day, I'm not going to name the uh, company, but it was a very, very large e-liquid company. And they were... uh, talking about, you know, if they were going to join some sort of lawsuit or whether they were going to join in lobbying Congress or, you know, what they were going to do. Their answer pretty much was, well, you know what we're going to do is we're going to just file the pre-market tobacco application and get approval. I mean, honestly, from a business standpoint, we're not going to contribute to a lawsuit or lobbying Congress. Uh, in, all honest, in all honesty, we don't want to help uh, other companies. We'd like to see them all go so that we get all the business and we're just going to apply for the application and uh, move, forward, move forward. That was pretty much their attitude. Uh, and I know people will get upset hearing that, saying, oh my God, how dare they? Well, listen, at the end of the day, from a business perspective, in their minds, if they can eliminate competition and be one of the only few games in town, it's a smart business move. Uh, from a perspective of keeping vaping and all this stuff alive, yeah, it's terrible. But the point being is they just have this attitude that we'll just uh, you know, uh, fill out the application, pay whatever the uh, uh, 
money is to, to file it because we're a big company. We can afford it and we'll get approved and stay in business. What these companies that are discussing this aren't understanding is it's not just as simple as paying whatever the pre-market tobacco application fee is. There are many, many other costs involved. Could you just, and I know there's so many of them, you could go on forever, Dr. Siegel, but could you just like kind of give people an idea of what else would be required once you submit this application and what the cost of that would be? And it's not just the cost of the application? Yes. So when you actually read the, so not only did the FDA release draft, uh, the, uh, sorry, not only did the FDA release the regulations themselves, but they released a draft guidance, which basically says how they intend to uh, enforce the applications and what they're what they're looking for, what they require in the applications. And basically, what they said is, first of all, that we consider every combination of nic- of nicotine strength and flavoring to be a separate tobacco product. And it would require separate testing. So if you are an e-liquid company and you're making uh, liquids and you, and you sell, let's say you sell 100 different flavors, right? and each of those flavors comes in three different nicotine strengths, you basically are talking about 300 different products. And for each of those products, you would have to do a chemical analysis to find out what's in the vapor or what's in the aerosol that's produced. Um, so we're talking, you know, even if we're talking a thousand dollars a test, um, we're talking, we're already up to three million dollars, and we haven't even gotten past the the testing phase. Um, but it's not just that; you also have to test it in a range of devices. So you can't just test it in one vaping device. You have to t- test it in several different varieties of vaping devices. And not only that, but you have to test it under three different conditions of use, light use, medium use, and heavy use. And not only that, but the FDA is asking you to test three different batches with 10 replicates per batch. So that means that every one of these tests has to be done 30 different times uh, with the same e-liquid to show that different batches and different uh, replicates in the same batch are producing the same components. Uh, and not only that, but to make things even worse, you have to uh, do this under different voltage conditions. So if an e-cigar, if an e, if the products that you're selling have, say, three different voltage settings, you would have to repeat this process for each of those voltage settings. And to make it even worse, not only do you have to test your finished product, but you have to test your finished pro- product over the course of its shelf life, meaning that you would have to let your product sit around for half six months or a year, however long the, the, the life is, and then you would have to test it again at the end of that period to show that uh, there was no change in the chemical uh, makeup of the liquid. These tests are extremely expensive. Uh, the lowest price I could find, I just went online, uh, I couldn't find anything for less than $300 per test. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about thousands of tests that are going to need to be done. Um, so it just to me it's just prohibitively expensive. Uh, we're looking at a minimum of a million dollars, and I just don't think there are that many small and medium companies out there that can afford that as a capital cost. You know, this is not a cost that you can put out over time. It's not an operating cost. This is essentially a capital cost that you have to just put out, 
And, um, and the other thing is you're putting it out without any guarantee that your product will be approved. That's right. Um, so it's a huge risk. I mean, you, you know, you're going to spend a million dollars. There's no guarantee that that will ever come back to you. Uh, because there's no guarantee that your product is going to be approved. And I just don't think that is, you know, it's not reasonable, it's not appropriate, uh, and I don't think a lot of companies are going to are gonna do that. And mind you, that's a million dollars per flavor per nicotine strength. So if you have, you know, 100 flavors, you're looking at $100 million. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's insanity. Uh, hang on. We have a call. We have a couple calls, actually. Area code 231. You are on the air with Dr. Siegel. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm a vape shop owner, very small business, and I would we do make our own e-juice. I do have the safety warning on the label, but what exactly are they requiring verbatim for the label to state? And do I have still two years to mix ourselves in the shop? Because there's no way we're going to be able to afford to, you know, apply for any regulation on this or approval. Okay, so the there is text on the warning label. I don't have it in front of me, um, but in the regulations it does uh, provide text that you can actually use on the warning label. Um, so you can find that in there. As far as uh, mixing your own juice there, you will be able to do that for the next two years, or actually starting on August 8th for two years. So until August 8th, 2018, um, you can continue to, to sell those um, liquids that you're, that you're mixing. Uh, however, after that date, um, if you haven't filed a new product application, then those would, would officially have to be taken off the market you couldn't continue to sell those um, if you decide to discontinue mixing your own liquids and to just sell you know prepackaged liquids then you're off the hook because you're not considered a manufacturer uh, so it would be up to the manufacturer of those liquids to get the FDA approval but to the extent that you're mixing your own liquids you are considered a manufacturer um, so you so you will not be able to do that after uh, two years uh, unless okay. you file these these uh, applications. Okay, thank you. I appreciate sure. your time. Thank you for okay. the call. Sure. Bye-bye. You know, uh, I, I'm going to get to the other call, but real quick, I had uh, I know a lot of uh, brick-and-mortars are wondering about the uh, free samples uh, that they put in there regarding free samples. Now, I did see that Mitch Zeller said today during the uh, press conference that uh, – any, that, that really constitutes anything that would leave the store. So in other words, uh, let's say you have a, I know a lot of stores have rewards programs where uh, if you get up so many points, you get a free bottle of e-liquid. Well, that's done. You can't do that anymore because that's considered a free sample. They're leaving the store with it. But if they're sitting there trying juice, they don't consider that a free sample. That's what I got from what he said today. Because what he said during that press conference was pretty much anything, if a customer was given something for free, they're leaving the store, that's considered a free sample, and you can't do that. Then that takes effect in 90 days uh, from today. So that's that's what I got uh, from that. So let's take uh, area code 318. You're on the air with Dr. Siegel. Hello. 
Hello. Hello, are you speaking to me? Yes, we are talking to you. Yes, my, my big question is regarding what Louisiana calls delivery sales, which means not face-to-face, but purchases made by phone or Internet. And Louisiana has forbidden uh, delivery sales that are delivered by the mail or uh, another uh, FedEx or UPS, but they only even though they've added e-cig vapor products to the tobacco regulations, when they, when they talk about issues, they only say, for example, with the delivery sales, they only say cigarettes, and they don't mention vape products. So my question is, uh, on, on the federal level, is are delivery sales going to be allowed, or will that be uh, not allowed? Well, the, the regulations do not, at this point, have anything in them that restricts uh, delivery sales. So, um, at least for the time being, uh, th- those delivery sales uh, are allowed, and sale over the Internet is allowed. Um, the agency did say in the regulations that it would be looking at these issues. And so, at some point down the road, it's possible that they might uh, decide to regulate those types of sales. But for now, um, those, those types of sales remain legal. If, if I can add one more thing, I think the whole point of that uh, 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 of that centered around photo ID because there is no way over the phone or through the internet to verify a photo ID. Now, we have there are lots of age verification apps or whatever that seem to uh, do that, but really they're not really effective because you can't verify a photo ID over the internet or over the phone. Right, exactly. There, are, and so the the um, it's possible that that is something that the agency would look at, uh, and that they could potentially um, propose regulations that would restrict those types of sales or require age verification. Uh, it's something they'll be looking at. Um, but for the time being, at least, there's the the deeming regulations don't include those restrictions. Thank you. Sure. All right. Thank you for your call. Thank you. Uh, we have a uh, God. We got a lot of calls. Uh, question coming from the chat: How is it? Uh, ev- how is it financially viable for the FDA when they don't even have the budget or staff to time? I mean, they have applications now that are sitting. There's issues, right, that aren't even approved. How are they going to even begin to tackle this? <laughs> I mean, that's a great, great point. Is you know, this is creating a huge bureaucratic nightmare uh, to have to go through all these applications, which are going to be literally thousands of pages long. Uh, there's so much that has to go in there. Even if you didn't have to do any new studies, even if you just had to summarize the existing literature, um, it would be thousands and thousands and thousands of pages to do that. And the FDA itself has estimated that it's going to take about 5,000 hours to complete an application. And while I think that's a low estimate, even if we accept that, um, that's an incredible amount of time and it's going to be an incredible number of documents. So when you think about that, how are they going to review? If it's taking you 5,000 hours to put together an application, it's not like they can sit down in one hour and go through and make a decision on whether they're going to approve it or not. Uh, So it's going to be incredibly resource-intensive for the agency 
to go through all these applications and to make decisions on them. Um, and that's part of the problem because I believe that we're going to have a huge backlog at the agency. And one of the unfortunate aspects of the regulations is that even if you put in your application and you're waiting to hear from the FDA and they haven't, you haven't heard back from them, at the end of this three-year period, so three years from August 8th, uh, according to the regulations, you are no longer authorized to keep your product on the market uh, if you haven't heard from the agency. So they can actually uh, de facto create a de facto prohibition of your product just by sitting on the application. Um, and if they're so, you know, if they're as busy as I think they'll be, um, it's likely that they won't be able to get to all these applications within 12 months, uh, and therefore there probably will be products that officially will have to be taken off the market simply because the FDA didn't have time to get to them. Right. Uh, and that's incredibly unfortunate because why should you punish the business owner when they complied fully with the regulation and the fault is the agencies itself for not having the resources to review the applications? Right, right. Uh, we have a question from the chat. Uh, isn't the entire discussion about testing and toxicology just pointless? No one can prove their products are a net benefit to overall public health anyway. Well, that's a really interesting point. Very, very intriguing point. Because right now, my colleagues, many of my colleagues in the public health field, experts in tobacco control and epidemiology and toxicology and health, are basically saying that they are not convinced that e-cigarettes are a benefit to the public health. Now, I, of course, I completely disagree with that, and I think that the evidence is, is, is very strong to show that they are a huge benefit. But the fact that even uh, my own, even people who are reputable scientists in this field right now are not convinced that these products are a benefit to public health if that's the case, then how is a manufacturer supposed to show that they are a benefit to the public's health? Right. Um, it, it may be a task that's literally impossible. And which, when Mitch Zeller was asked this question, he actually said that in, he's not sure that anyone will be able to successfully put an application through. He was not able to, to, to state that, uh, you know, he's, that he's pretty sure that that anyone will get an application through. He he was very noncommittal and just said, well, "Well, you know, we'll have to see, but I can't I can't promise that any application will be approved." Um, so I think it is a a very difficult task, and even for the tobacco companies, it's going to be difficult because you know if the public health groups right now don't see uh, there being any net net public health benefit of electronic cigarettes, how is a manufacturer supposed to demonstrate that? It's it's a good, very good point. Right. You no, know, it is. It's, it's, it's a very good point. Uh, area code 417, you are on the air with Dr. Siegel. Hello. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having the show today. No problem. Um, and thank you, Dr. Siegel, for being part of it. Um, as a consumer and an advocate, I can get away with asking a few questions that shop owners can't. A big one that's been going through my mind is these shop owners have limited financial resources. Would it be to their advantage to invest 
their money in litigation over compliance? Great question. Because as it's been pointed out, coming into compliance, not everyone's going to make that vote. Right, right. Um, well, you know, that's a judgment that I can't – every individual owner would have to make that judgment themselves. I can't really um, speak for anyone else or, or tell, you know, anyone what to do. But I can, I can give you a little bit of information about the litigation approach. Um, and the first thing I should tell everyone is that uh, this morning, uh, Nicopure filed the first lawsuit against the FDA. So there has already, you know, it's been a couple of days that have gone by. Already we have one lawsuit that's been filed. And that lawsuit was filed under two provisions. One is the Administrative Procedures Act. Uh, and basically the, the that is basically saying that any time a public health agency issues regulations, those regulations have to have a rational basis. And so the the claim is that these uh, there's no rational public health basis for these regulations. And the second ground is on the constitutionality, specifically that it violates First Amendment rights. Um, and without having seen the complaint, it's hard for me to comment on the legal uh, parts of it. But I but I can tell you that I have written myself that I think these regulations do violate the free speech rights of, of businesses because they preclude companies from telling their customers that there's no tobacco in these products or that they're smoke-free or that they have lower levels of certain chemicals compared to cigarettes. All those are banned by the FDA, um, which I think is a violation of free speech. Um, so I predict that there are going to be multiple uh, multiple uh, lawsuits that are filed here, um, and you know it's up to owners to decide what they you know whether they want to be involved in that or not. But um, whatever they decide, I can assure you that there are going to be some large companies that are going to challenge this legally. The other question I had was regarding public health. The FDA is supposed to be a regulatory agency that is concerned for the public health. How can that agency make this type of a judgment call and yet ignore all the science that's out there that supports this is indeed a public health cause? I think that's an amazing question, and uh, you know, it's a question I ask myself uh, every day. It's it's it continues to to shock me how this agency, which is in charge with protecting the public health, can basically make a judgment that, in my mind, is actually going to severely harm the public's health. Completely ignores the science that's out there, um, makes draws a conclusion that there's no evidence that e-cigarettes are helping anyone and doesn't even conclude that e-cigarettes are safer. The, the FDA has actually stated that they're not sure that e-cigarettes are any safer than regular cigarettes. Um, so how they, can, how they can take the existing science and not be able to see the obvious uh, is beyond me. And it's very difficult to try to explain that because it's just something that I don't understand. It's foreign to me. Uh, being in public health, I don't understand it. Um, and, it's born you know, to I, a lot of us. Yeah, yeah. It's very difficult to understand and it's difficult to explain. Um, the only, you know, bright, positive light to this is that 
because there's no real public health basis for this, um, that is one thing that can be challenged in litigation. Uh, and I think that's what Nick Apure is doing. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Siegel. And once again, thanks a lot for having the extra show, Kevin. Thank you for your call. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have another phone call, area code 501. You're on the air. Hello. 501. You got to turn down your uh, Hi. Your speakers. Yes. Hi. Yeah, sorry. I had another call coming in at the same time. Uh, my question is regarding uh, zero nicotine products not covered by the FDA, um, e liquid, and vaporizers that are labeled specifically not for use with liquids other than uh, no nicotine. Would those be able to pass through without having FDA authority over them? So the, um, you know, the e-liquids are, are not an issue because if there's no nicotine in them and you can certify that, uh, then that's not a problem. The question is the devices. And this is a complexity that is not exactly clear in the regulations. Um, but here's my interpretation. Essentially, the language that the FDA sets out is that the device is going to be considered a tobacco product if it is either intended to be used with a tobacco product. So if the intention is to use that device with nicotine-containing e-liquids, then it would be considered uh, a tobacco product. So if a, if a manufacturer were putting out vaping devices and they were only selling non-nicotine e-liquids with that device and they had a specific statement saying this product is not to be used with uh, nicotine-containing liquid, I believe that they would be able to justify um, defining that product as not being a tobacco product. Um, however, if the manufacturer is selling e-liquids that contain nicotine at the same time, it's going to become a lot harder to make that argument because what's to stop somebody from using a nicotine-containing uh, product with that device? So I, I think it has to do with the interpretation of what the intention of the company is and what people are actually doing with the product um, uh, but I think the most clear-cut case would be a manufacturer that simply doesn't sell nicotine-containing e-liquids, and that is putting out a, a device that specifically states this is not to be used with nicotine liquids. Um, I think if that were the case, then you would be in fairly safe grounds. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, I'm just looking for a workaround. And the consumer, once they have the device, what they choose to do with it, if they choose to add nicotine or, or I have no control over that. Um, but to the point of setting up uh, an operation where they uh, decide to continue on as a manufacturer of e-liquids and now hardware uh, specifically for the purpose of zero nicotine, that's how I would market myself. Um, and explicitly put labeling and warning that it's not to be used with nicotine uh, devices. Same as many man uh, marijuana type uh, pipes and accessories, I think, are able to get around the uh, laws today. Well, someone brought that up, Thank too. You know, I think, you know, I discussed that with somebody the other day, and they had said that, for example, in Connecticut, we have medical marijuana. So is China really going to go through this whole application process? No, they're not. They're just going to continue to sell these products and say they're for 
Medi- so, like, say I have a store in Connecticut, I could just say, oh, they're for medical marijuana use. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, can, can, is that possible? I don't know if it is or not. Well, they're going to look at the, they're going to look at two things. They're going to look at your marketing, including your labeling. And they're going to look at what the product is actually, the way the product is actually being used by consumers. Um, and those are the two factors that go into it. So if you're very careful in the marketing and you're labeling and you specifically say, um, you know, this is not to be used with, with nicotine-containing e-liquids, um, you know, that, that is going to provide you a, a, a pretty good degree of safety um, because you can show that clearly you're not intending this for use with nicotine products and it's all over your, your website and it's actually on the product itself. I think that provides a large degree of, of protection. Um, where the gray zone comes in is what if a lot of people are taking your device and then using it with uh, nicotine-containing e-liquids, uh, then it's possible that the, the FDA could say, well, you know, people are, are there's a reasonable expectation that people are going to take this and use it with nicotine e-liquids. Um, I, I don't know, you know, it's difficult to predict how they would view that. Um, but I think the safest thing is to make sure, at very least, that you are very clear in the marketing and labeling of the product. Right. Is that your uh, question, caller? Yeah, I think that, that covers, I'm just looking for another angle of how they're going to not affect uh, zero nicotine products. I mean, my true concern at this point, uh, what I'm unclear of is the effects of the flavorings um there's so many different flavorings um obviously in comparison to cigarettes um that's not concerned but it seems the fda doesn't have any concern over that their whole concern is over whether or not it contains nicotine because that's what gives them the authority to control it as a tobacco product um i also wonder if we have the ability to change uh the definition of, of vapor products and to its own category, that's something that we were able to do here in Arkansas at the state level is create a whole new category for vaping products that's separate from traditional tobacco or other alternative nicotine devices and also separate for e-liquids themselves. Um, so it's interesting how uh, we're going to approach it here at the state level. Uh, as well, because there's a chance um, for an injunction, I think, uh, because it contradicts our already established state laws. Maybe you have some thoughts on on that topic as well. Well, I think that the uh, I think that what you're saying is exactly what needs to be done. There needs to be a separate regulatory um, pathway for vaping products. They need to be regulated as their own category and not lumped in with tobacco products because they're not tobacco products. There's no tobacco. They don't pose the same risks as cigarettes do. And uh, one of the things that I'm working on with uh, senators who who have expressed concern about this is trying to get them to introduce legislation that would reclassify electronic cigarettes as vaping devices and then require the FDA to regulate them in a separate category. so I'm hoping that we can get legislation like that through Congress because that is exactly what we need. Um, that is really the way things should be done. Right. Great. Thanks for the answer all the questions. Thank you for sure. calling. Sure. Thank you.
And, you know, that's the fear, too. Uh, real quick, uh, we only have a few more minutes left with Dr. Siegel. 347-308-8329. Press number one if you have a question or comment. Uh, now, you know, this is officially a tobacco product. My fear now is what states are going to do. Now, I know here in Connecticut, uh, we've dealt with our health committee for years over certain legislation that has come up, and we've done pretty well. We have a lobbyist here. We have a Safada chapter. We've done okay. But what they've been saying to us is, we're going to wait for those regulations to come down, and then we're going to act. Now, I think a lot of fear for a lot of states is now they're going to tax the living hell out of it because it is now a tobacco product. It's to their minds, it's just like cigarettes. We're going to tax it like cigarettes, which would be devastating for uh, brick and mortars. You know, I mean, if you have it to a point where e-liquid, it costs just as much, if not more, to use an e-cigarette than it does to smoke. And convincing states that that's a bad idea. I mean, I know here we're going to give the health committee a copy of the Royal College of Physicians report. Hopefully they take value in that and read that because at the end of the day, they're supposed to be concerned about public health, not about taxing the hell out of this and, and uh, you know, driving all these businesses out of business and having people just, which they might end up just going back to smoking cigarettes. Uh, that is a, a, a fear, I think, a lot of... Uh, I know we do here have that fear, and I'm sure a lot of other states uh, have that fear as well. Uh, do, do you think there's going to be a lot of that, Dr. Siegel, that they're just going to start taxing the hell out of this? Well, unfortunately, I think, I think you're right. I think that the uh, focus of state activity... Oh, let's see. There's there's a there's a kind of an upside and a downside. The upside is I think that this will end some of the uh, actions that that states have taken, um, specifically actions related to regulation of the product, like Indiana is doing, where they set their own manufacturing standards. Mm-hmm. Um, Luckily, I think now that the FDA has acted, there's going to be less impetus to do that type of thing. But I do think that the focus is going to move over to taxing the products now that they're officially classified as tobacco products under the the FDA rules. Um, You know, the state of Vermont very recently proposed a 95% tax on electronic cigarettes, which is unheard of, uh, essentially doubling their, their price. Right. And, you know, this is this is makes no sense at all. We want there should be a competitive advantage financially to switching to vaping products. Uh, One of the, uh, you know, ways in which we do we succeed in public health is by having uh, pricing using pricing as an incentive to get people to do healthy things. And in this case, that's destroying that incentive because you're actually uh, making it less likely that people are going to use the, va- the safer vaping products and more likely that they're just going to say, well, what's the point of switching if it's costing me more or if there's no cost savings? Um, so hopefully we can continue to fight those, those types of proposals on public health grounds. Right. Uh, we do have a question from the chat. In my opinion, there are several vendors who are already assuming that they can simply create nicotine-free versions of their e-liquids, submit applications for them, and therefore bypass the additional cost involved. They believe they can sell these freely. Wouldn't this backfire since there are plenty of end users who will simply add a nicotine bump, thereby changing the constituent components of a liquid that has already been cleared as zero nick by the application process. 
would the liability come back on the manufacturer under the reasonably and intended act or use uh, catch all terminology and the regs? So that is, that is a great question. Um, and it's difficult to answer because it all depends on the way that the agency interprets um, that, that part of the regulation. Um, a couple things that I can say are, number one, it would be critical that that company have very clear marketing and labeling um, stating that these, are, these liquids are not intended to be mixed with nicotine-containing liquids. Um, you know, there's only so much that a manufacturer can do. They can't control the behavior of the consumer. And so if they do everything they can to diligently, you know, make it clear on their website and put labeling on the product, you know, do not mix. This is not intended to be used with, with uh, nicotine-containing e-liquids. Um, then I think they've gone a long way towards fulfilling that burden. They've certainly taken care of the intended part. The other part of it was is whether or not they could reasonably expect that people are going to use it in that way. Um, and that's the vaguest part of it, because how do you prove that, uh, whether, whether or not somebody can reasonably expect it to be used in a certain way? Um, and I think that because that's so vague, it's going to be, it's more likely that the agency will focus on the intended use. So um, I can't say this with certainty, uh, but I do think that if companies are very, very, if they only produce non-nicotine-containing liquids and they're very careful in labeling and marketing the product consistently, uh, making it clear that this is not to be in, intended to be uh, mixed with any nicotine, um, then I think they're, they're going to be relatively safe. Right, right. And, and I, I have a question. There has been a lot. Uh, the regs just came out less than a week ago, but there's already a lot of discussion about this uh, in, within our uh, community here, our online vaping community. Uh, some people are for suing. Some people are for lobbying Congress. Your personal opinion, do you think we have a better chance of suing or lobbying Congress, or should we, should we be doing both? Well, I think I think we need to do both. I think both approaches make sense, and either pr approach could potentially be successful. Um, and 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 actually, to be honest, I think that each approach helps the other one. So I think it's easier to lobby Congress if there is litigation that is that is active, because one of the arguments that can be made is, you know, this is a complete mess. Look what's happening. Companies have sued the FDA. It's going to be t mired up, tied up in in litigation for years, that just gives more impetus for Congress to intervene, right? Um, because the government obviously is going to have to pay a lot of money and a lot of resources to defend these lawsuits. And is that a, is that a good use of taxpayer money? Um, so I actually think that the litigation approach will help the congressional approach, um, giving because it provides the argument that you know, look, this thing is tied up in courts. It's a disaster. We need to do something to clarify it uh, and end these lawsuits. So I think they're mutually uh, beneficial approaches. They'll help each other. Right. And, you know, something vapors can do uh, in their prospective states. For example, we, uh, we have uh, 
Richard Blumenthal, terrible Richard Blumenthal, who's probably one of the most anti-vaping e-cigarette senators on the planet. He's up for re-election this year. Uh, we're going to work on, uh, we're going to get in touch with uh, Dan Carter, is actually his, uh, the Republican uh, running against him this year. We're going to get in touch with Dan Carter. We're going to educate Dan Carter on what we're doing. Vapers are going to support Dan Carter. You know, Richard Blumenthal always somehow, I don't know how people vote for him, but they do, and he always ends up winning. This year, he's not going to win. Vapers are going to make sure that Dan Carter is the next senator of Connecticut, not Richard Blumenthal. And, you know, these are things you can, Vapers can do in their states as well. You know, find out if, if, if you have congressmen or senators. You know, this is an election year. Find out who's running. Find out who is anti-e-cigarette, anti-vaping, and vote them out. This is a very crucial thing. We need to all start doing this across the country. It's very, very important. I mean, I, I, I'm excited. I can't wait. We're, we're, there's a lot of vapors in the state of Connecticut. We're going to get rid of uh, Richard Blumenthal. <laughs> I really believe we can do it, Dr. Siegel. I think we can do it. Um, and and I, I think Dan Carter will love to have our support. I really do. If he's going to get thousands of votes from us, I'm sure he'd be uh, on board with uh, supporting uh, uh, vaping and uh, keeping vape shops alive. And, uh, you know, this is something that we need to do. This is very, very, that's what vapors can do. People who just, you know, that, that needs, right? I mean, that needs to happen. I think that it's very important to bring this up as an election issue. Um, and see how candidates stand on this issue and, and use the election as an opportunity to push uh, the public health perspective on, on the vaping issue. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, Dr. Siegel, I want to thank you for coming on and doing this. I know you're very busy. I want to thank you for your wonderful blog, The Rest of the Story, Tobacco News Analysis and Commentary. You've been a champion for us for years. You've worked tirelessly to uh, open people's eyes to uh, the, the, the wonderful benefits of vaping and electronic cigarettes. Uh, I don't know how you do it, but somehow you do. And I want to thank you on behalf of everybody worldwide who vapes for all the work that you do, because we really, really do appreciate it. And uh, you are very respected in our community for all the work that you do for us. And I thank you so much for doing this. I really do. Well, thank you, Kevin. I, it means a lot to me. I appreciate it. And I thank you for the opportunity to speak uh, with so many folks and, and get the word out there. Um, because the more people we can educate about what the FDA is doing and the reality of what's in the regulations, the better chance we have of finding a, a remedy for the situation. So thanks for, for having me on. And um, I wish everyone the best. Absolutely. I thank you for coming on, sir. We'll talk to you later, Dr. Siegel. Thank you. Okay, thanks so much, Kevin. Bye-bye. Tobaccoanalysis.blogspot.com is his blog. I will put a link to his blog on the replay notes because you should be following everything Dr. Siegel is saying. He's been a champion for us. Wonderful man. I want to thank everybody for listening. This is our special edition with a Q&A with Dr. Michael Siegel. I want to thank The Plume Room, theplumeroom.com, for sponsoring this. VP Live 15 will give you 15% off uh, all their, anything you purchase on the site. So go to theplumeroom.com and smokelessimage.com. Thank you for sponsoring these broadcasts because without them, there'd be no VP Live. And we wouldn't be able to do this. I thank everybody, and I will see you soon. Thank you.